Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Expert Series podcast. I'm Wayne Stacy, the Executive Director for BCLT and your host today. Today's topic is the world of PTAB estoppel and some of the odd outcomes that are impacting litigations. With me to go over this topic is Travis Jensen, one of the country's top patent litigators from ORIC. So Travis, thank you for joining us today. I look forward to, to hearing your thoughts on this odd case. My pleasure, thanks for having me. So the, the case I've been hinting at here is the, the trust ID um, versus next caller case out of Delaware. It's had a little bit of, of write up and a little bit of head scratching. So tell us why this case is of any interest to people. Well, I think it's because the case contrasts two aspects of PTAB-related estoppel, and those are the statutory uh, IPR estoppel provision and the equitable doctrine of collateral estoppel. And it analyzed these in, in the same order and reached what the district court itself characterized as a counterintuitive result. And it's something that I think a lot of practitioners kind of instinctively felt, you know, perhaps was unfair. <laughs> Um, and let me just read, I, I think, uh, one statement from the, the court's order that, that highlights this. So the, the court said, um, the court understands that allowing plaintiff to proceed at trial on claims that have been found by the PTAB to be invalid, while at the same time preventing defendant from asserting prior art defenses against these claims based on estoppel under 315E2 seems counterintuitive. That said, it is a permissible result that follows from the statute and relevant case law. So I think it's really the contrast of those uh, two different types of estoppel that, that caught people's attention. Perhaps standing alone, you know, either uh, of the court's rulings may not have been quite as interesting. So we're, we're 10 years into the AIA and this estoppel provision, you know, doesn't seem to me that when Congress drafted the original estoppel provision, they were contemplating this particular result. Uh, I'm not sure what what exactly they were contemplating on this interplay, but but why are we still talking about estoppel ten years into this? You know, I think that's a fair question, and you know, certainly the the statutory estoppel provisions have received a lot of attention and airtime, and have been you know the subject of of numerous court decisions. Uh, but even those issues aren't fully resolved, right? The federal circuit has yet to, to weigh in, at least in a definitive matter, on the scope of the statutory estoppel and you know what is reasonably could have raised um, mean. Uh, you know, on the collateral estoppel front here, the issue of preclusion, you know, I think that's received a lot less uh, attention for a few different reasons. You know, number one is, you know, in the early days, um, you know the the IPRs were, were essentially validating a lot of patents and so they wouldn't come back to the district court, <laughs> right? Uh, which is the only place or the primary place where this issue would, would come up of, of collateral estoppel and can you assert claims that the PTAB found to be invalid? Um, you know, another reason is I'd say more recently, you know, there's been an uptick in the number of, uh, you know, discretionary denials and, and institution decisions that, um, you know, are not instituted. And, you know, third, a lot of the, the cases in the district courts uh, have been stayed, right, pending the, the proceedings in the PTAB. So, you know, it's, it's only, you know, kind of more recently that these collateral estoppel issues have started to work their way through the, 
through the district courts, notwithstanding that, yeah, we're, as you mentioned, a decade into this. Well, okay, so let's let's talk about the collateral estoppel. I mean, the statutory estoppel was supposedly well-defined by the statute, and I'll stress supposedly, uh, but collateral estoppel, you know, isn't part of the AIA, really. Uh, it's just something that's occurring. Tell us what we what we need to know about the collateral estoppel issues in this case. So with respect to collateral estoppel, you know, this is this is a, an equitable doctrine that has been around for for many, many, many years, uh, just in the general sense. Right. Uh, I think one thing to keep in mind here when we're talking about uh, PTAB based collateral estoppel is that um, the, and the few courts that have, have looked at this, I think, agree that at least the key aspects of the collateral estoppel analysis implicate substantive patent law and are governed by sort of federal circuit law, not the wealth of regional circuit collateral estoppel law that is out there across the country. So, you know, we're really looking here to, to the federal circuit for, for guidance on a number of points. And in, in this particular case, the trust ID case, you know, I think there, there's two aspects of collateral estoppel that are, are worth discussing. Um, so I, I think focusing on uh, number one, the finality question, uh, which is essentially, you know, when does collateral estoppel kick in? <laughs> um, and then the identicality question, you know, is the same issue, is the identical issue being litigated in district court as was addressed in uh, you know, a PTAB final written decision? Okay, let's, let's just pick up the finality piece first. I mean, we, we know in this case, the PTAB issued a, a final written decision. So what's the, the district court saying about that with regard to finality? So the, the final written decision um, is certainly important. And, and when you're talking about uh, statutory estoppel, right, that's right in the statute. And so that's sort of the trigger, if you will, for when the estoppel kicks in. But with respect to the collateral estoppel issue that, that was addressed in the, the trust ID case, right, the question of can the plaintiff continue to assert these claims that were quote unquote invalidated by the PTAB, right, the issue really turns on whether the pendency of an appeal you know, uh, renders that finality point, uh, you know, unmet. And so, you know, obviously the defendant, you know, argued and wanted to say, hey, there's a, there's a final written decision. That's what it's called, <laughs> is a final written decision. And that should be the, the trigger sort of hard stop. Um, the, the district court, Judge Norieka in the trust ID case said, well, that's not so clear and cited a number of federal circuit cases that uh, in her view, suggested that a, an affirmance uh, on appeal or, or a waiver of an appeal um, would be necessary to, to satisfy the finality requirement and, and thus give effect to the collateral stop. So that's, that's really the issue is what is the effect of a pending appeal? Well, and it's interesting, the timing of finality may have just gotten extended in light of Arthrex and the new director director review. So somebody could really drag this out a long time waiting for director review, federal circuit review, and then a shot at the Supreme Court. So there's a lot of room for gamemanship here, isn't there, on finality? I, well, I certainly think there's a lot of open questions, and, and I, 
I, I fully agree that there's uh, you know room for some creative lawyering when it comes to the Arthrex remands and and you know how that bears on the um, you know collateral estoppel question. And, and frankly, that's something that you know practitioners may want to think about. Are they willing to sort of you know waive that remand? Do they want to send their appeal back to the patent office? Um, you know, in view of some of these um, considerations. It, you know, when I first read this trust ID case, uh, it was um, interesting that, that um, another case came to mind that I had recently been looking at, another Delaware case, um, the Biogen case from, from just last year, because I, I thought that it might have reached a different outcome. And curiously enough, the Biogen decision was authored by none other than the same uh, Mary Ellen Norieka as the trust ID case. And it, in the Biogen case, um, I, I just wanted to share maybe one uh, quote from that. There, the court stated that uh, in the court's view, the Milan judgment is no less preclusive because it was rendered by a district court rather than the federal circuit. And the judgment's preclusive effect is in no way diminished because it is presently on appeal or because this case where preclusion is sought has already proceeded through trial. Um, you know, some food for thought there, and I guess in, in the judge's defense, uh, perhaps you could distinguish those cases because, you know, Biogen was talking about the effect of a, a district court decision on another district court case, case as opposed to a, you know, a PTAB agency decision on uh, the district court case. But, you know, I, I think there's certainly some, some law out there and, and the Supreme Court's B&B uh, hardware case says, well, you know, agency decisions can also give rise to, to collateral estoppel. So, you know, I, I don't think this is the last that we've heard, certainly on, on the finality question. Well, let's turn to the, the second issue, uh, which is as interesting, and that's the, uh, the identicality issue. So where did, uh, where did the court come down on that and why? Yeah, so before answering that, let me just uh, throw out one other case to keep an eye on, on the finality point, uh, which is the Vernetics v. Apple case, where that, uh, that essentially the same issue is, is currently on appeal right now to the Federal Circuit, whether the, the Federal Circuit will ultimately reach that or, or be rendered, you know, decide the case on other grounds and render it moot remains to be seen, um, but something to watch out for. On the, uh, the identicality issue here, right, what we're talking about is um, you know, one of the elements of the collateral estoppel test is, you know, it was the same issue or the identical issue, uh, you know, previously litigated. And, uh, you know, here we're talking about uh, an invalidity decision, right? Whether it's 102 or, or, or 103, um, that, that's really what the focus is. And there's no doubt that the PTAB's final written decision, uh, you know, addresses the question of validity of, of the challenge claims. And so, uh, you know, some courts have, have essentially concluded that, that that's sufficient, that's the end of the analysis. But, um, you know, the trust ID case, you know, dug a little bit deeper and said, well, not so fast. You know, the Supreme Court has instructed us that, that you know, the, whether two issues are identical turns on, on whether they have the same uh, legal, legal standard or, or legal burden. And here, there, there's a contrast, of course, between the PTAB, where there's a preponderance of the evidence um, you know, burden of proof or standard, and district courts, which apply the, the clear and convincing evidence standard uh, for, for invalidity. 
And so in, in reliance on that difference, the, the trust ID court said, you know, no, these, these are not the same issue. Um, you know, collateral estoppel does not apply. What's well, not the, the first time a, a court seen this type of issue, is it? No, it's not. Although there's not a wealth of, of decisions out there, but, but there have been, you know, several cases that have grappled with this, um, with the same argument, this same issue. And, and here we're talking about, I'll say not just the, the burden of proof, but, you know, on appeal, there's a different standard of review for agency decisions versus uh, district court cases. And, you know, in, in view of all those, those differences, are these things really the same? Uh, I would say that, that the weight of authority uh, has, has come out the kind of the other direction. There were um, three cases that, that kind of came to mind. Uh, per, perhaps the Cisco case is, is the best example. That's out of the Northern District of California, um, where, where Judge Chen, I, I think, did a, a fairly fulsome analysis of this issue. And, you know, in reliance on, on some, some federal circuit cases and perhaps a little bit of extrapolation from those said, you know, those, those things don't really render the, the issues sufficiently different for, for estoppel purposes. It's that case in particular, I, I mentioned because I, I thought it was interesting that um, one of the parties in that case had requested certification for an interlocutory appeal to take this issue up to the federal circuit and say, well, it's a, it's a new or novel question, or there, you know, there's, there's not agreement among the courts on this. And, and Judge Chen, um, he, he denied that request and said, I, I think it's fairly clear this isn't really a new or novel issue. I think there's enough guidance out there and, and kind of held firm on that. Um, you know, similar outcomes in Nord in the Intellectual Ventures v. Lenovo case, that's out of the, the District of Massachusetts going back a couple of years in, in 2019 as well as uh, another case, the Fellows v. Echo Brands case in, in the Northern District of, of Illinois, you know, reached a similar conclusion. So I think that, you know, the, the trust ID case is, is perhaps an outlier uh, in, in this respect. I, I don't wanna say it's the only case that reaches the conclusion that it did, but there are certainly cases going the other way. Well, with, with all of this in mind, is, is the trust ID decision indicative of a, a shift in the law, or is this just a, a one-off decision that somebody got lucky or unlucky with? Yeah, I, I think it's probably the latter. And, you know, I, I've noted that uh, there's some, you know, some uncertainty or disagreement on on kind of the legal questions, but I wanted to to point out what I think are some of the maybe factual circumstances that contributed to to the court's thinking in the trust ID case. And it's not to say that any of these um, sort of, you know, uh, factors or facts individually is, is particularly unique, but I think um, in the aggregate, it, it does kind of place this case, you know, as sort of an outlier. And so, you know, some of those things are, you know, in the, in the trust ID case, there were also, you know, false advertising claims that, that had to be tried and, and, you know, regardless of the, the patents or the, the patent issues. There were three patents at issue in that case, two of which did not have any, you know, collateral estoppel or IPR related issues, and those patents would go forward as well. And even as to the to the one patent where this issue did arise, um, you know, there were claims that had survived the final written decision uh, in the IPR, and so those those claims, you know, there was no estoppel anyways to those, and they would need to be tried regardless. So, you know. 
in, in view of some of those considerations and the fact that you know the trial had been delayed a long time due to COVID and, and other things, um, you know, perhaps made sense to to, to just proceed. <laughs> I'll, I'll note too that um, you know the, the judge uh, in the order itself, you know, said something I, I think that was interesting. Uh, she said that that her ruling was a permissible result, not not a mandatory or required result. And I think perhaps you know some of these other factors kind of played uh, into that as well. Uh, the last thing I'll I'll note on on this point is that you know. The judge did consider, uh, you know, since he's staying the case, to just let the the, the PTAB appeal uh, play out. And I think, you know, more often than not, that that's probably a fair argument if you're in a, let's say, a run-of-the-mill patent case where there's one or two patents and and all of the claims were were invalidated in a final written decision. I think you've got a pretty good efficiency argument that, you know, even if collateral estoppel didn't apply and the plaintiff could could go to trial on those claims, that the case should. You know, be stayed or remain stayed pending completion of the um, of the appeal. Well, just so we we know how this turned out, tell us tell us what the final result was. <laughs> yeah, for those who are curious, uh, the case did go to trial. I want to say maybe just a week or two after um, the trust ID decision, which which was a ruling on a motion in limine. And so the the case was tried. The the one patent that that had the estoppel issue, you know, there was no prior art presented, although there was a one on one challenge that was made. Um, you know, the defendant lost on validity across the board, but won on uh, non infringement. So, um, you know, defendant I think took some comfort from that, right? I'm sure they would have liked to invalidate the patent or patents, but um, you know, on the patent issues they won and and. For completeness, I, I think on the false advertising claim, the, the defendant lost and there was a, a verdict against them on that. Well, Travis, thank you for, for your time today. Uh, an interesting case, and we'll see, one, how the Vernetics case comes out uh, as it winds its way through the federal circuit uh, and maybe come back and, and finish this discussion up with new law. Well, I, I'd be happy to join again. Thanks for having me. Take care.